Welcome back to Look Ma No Hands in 2020. I am your host, Laura Max Rose, and I am beyond thrilled to welcome my first guest of the new year, Mary Beth Archidiakono. Mary Beth, thank you for joining me. I am so happy to be here. Mary Beth has an incredible story um, that I have been honored to hear and listen to and um, be a witness to in the past few years since I've met her. She has four beautiful children. And about 20 years ago, was it 20 years ago? 21. 21 years ago, she experienced what most of us consider to be a parent's worst nightmare um, in a car accident in which she lost one of them and another one experienced a brain trauma that still affects him to this day. Mary Beth is unlike anyone I've ever met in the way that she has just been... I don't even really know the word for it other than resilient, but that doesn't really seem like it covers it. The way that she honors her own grief and the grief of others in going through this experience is something that I'm continually in awe of. And I wanted to bring her on the show today because, you know, we talk about stuff on here that maybe some of us experience every day and things that can help us in our day-to-day lives. But there are so many people out there who have experienced the loss of a child and, um, or we know people who've experienced the loss of a child and we want to be able to be there for them in the best way that we can be. And one of my goals in 2020 is to talk about things on this show that maybe aren't spoken about as frequently as they should be. Um, but that people need to hear more about that people need to know more about. So I'm going to go ahead and get started with Mary Beth and she's going to tell us her story. So, um, without any further ado, Mary Beth, thank you again for joining me today. Hi again, thank you for having me. So my story 21 years ago with my four children. We were coming back home in August of 1998 from our summer vacation in Estes Park, Colorado. When outside of Pueblo, two of my children had a little tiff and I reached back to sort of comfort one of them and my car swerved. I tried to audit correct and one of my tires went off the road and we rolled four times. So when that happened, the car stopped and my third son, Joey, said, uh, Mom, I'm here. And Allie was still in her car seat. Joey was nine. Allie was five. Christopher was 11 and Johnny 13. And Johnny and Christopher were not in the car. I had a Suburban. Um, Of course, panic set in. I just got out of the car and ran. I was barefoot running through glass and debris and the smell was overpowering. The boys were um, in the medium on the side, in the medium of the road on Highway 25 outside of Pueblo. Um, Obviously, it was shocking. Joey ran behind me and sat and watched the two boys on the ground. Um, By that point, people had come and somebody was holding Allie away from the scene And, um, finally, I think a patrol car came and said, you know, the man got out or whatever and said, um, ma'am, your children's seatbelts are still fastened. I said, well, of course they are. They don't even leave our driveway without their seatbelts. And at the time it did nothing really registered other than I said, listen, please pray for my children. At this point I knew it was in God's hand, whatever was going to happen. And they had been ejected from the car. They had been ejected. And their seatbelts were still on them. Still on them. Still, okay. no, not on them. They were still fastened. They were the still seat. fastened. Yes. Yeah, so okay. the, when the car stopped, you know, their seatbelts were still fastened, but they had been ejected. Um, and 
at that point, I think a paramedic came and said Christopher had a compound fracture. His eyes were, he was semi-conscious and Johnny's eyes were fixed and dilated. And I knew that wasn't good. So I was just calmly, actually, I don't know how, saying, listen, I need to get my children to Denver. I knew that level one trauma unit was not anywhere near. And we were, you know, two and a half, three hours outside of Denver. Um, So three ambulances came and took um, Johnny and Christopher. I was in with Johnny, and then Christopher was in another ambulance. And then another ambulance took Joey and Allie, who had really minor um, injuries at that point. Well, no, minor injuries. And so we went to a the emergency room in Pueblo, Colorado. And at that point, we're trying to get Life Light or whatever you call it in Colorado to come take the boys to Denver. So uh, my sister was behind us on the road about an hour and a half because they had been with us in Estes and her husband came. My husband was not here. He was meeting us and he had been with us for part of the trip. Now I'm rambling, but um, he had gone home because I was there for three weeks. He could only stay for a week because of his job. He had gone back to Houston and was flying to Amarillo to meet us for the last leg of the trip because I was by myself with the four kids. Um, and it's a long drive. So long story short, uh, I think my I called my father and said, we're in an accident. You know, I don't know what to do, how to get a hold of Johnny. And I told him I knew it was bad. Um, so he, my dad was able to reach Johnny in the airport in Dallas. He threw through Love Field and say, you need to reroute to Denver. In that moment, had you had any idea what had really happened or you were just in survival mode of let's get them where they need to be? I was in survival mode of let's get them where to, where they need to be. I mean, they were both alive. So, um, you know, I had no idea what that I mean, at that point, I had no idea if I was going to lose one or both of them. And that the idea of that probably at that moment hadn't it, quite set in. It did not set in. But when we got to Pueblo and the boys were on the table and then they had Allie and Joey in another room. So I was running back and forth and I was also injured, which I, I don't even know. They were just like, you're going to have to go in and have some tests done because I wanted to get on the plane or whatever with the boys. And they're like, no, I had a pulmonary contusion, a whatever you concussion. You can't even think about that. Yeah. That uh, my feet were all bloody from running through the glass that was oh on the ground. I mean, it was anyway. Um, so they, Johnny was worse off, which I learned then, and they needed to take him because he was bleeding internally. They took him to another room and the plane came or whatever came to get Christopher. So Christopher went by himself on the plane. And then Johnny was still there having the surgery. And Joey came to me, little Joey, and those little eyes, I'll never forget the look on his face. And he said, Mom, go tell Johnny he's going to get to ride on a helicopter because the plane had already left. So they were bringing a helicopter to take Johnny. And he was excited. He thought Johnny's going to be excited yeah. that he's so going to get to go on a helicopter. I went back and he was in the recovery room at that point and, you know, told him obviously he was not conscious. And um, then a little bit by that point, my brother-in-law had come to get Allie and Joey. So they were gone after I told him about the helicopter. And then I don't know how much longer they made me do these tests. And then they came and a doctor came and a nurse came first and said, I need you to come with me. And so I walked down this long aisle and there was a doctor standing out there and he just looked at me and said, I'm sorry. And that's when I knew I went into the room and there he was, you know, on the table dead. You told me one time that 
in that moment, you just knew that you needed to help Christopher. Like Christopher was still right, still fighting. Yeah. And you just kind of, even though you wanted to be there and grieve for Johnny, you were still in this fight or flight mode of yeah. I've got to save Christopher. Right. Which most parents, when they lose one child, it's that, that's it. Yeah. And they right. get to be there. Yeah. You had to move on to I your had other to child. totally switch gears. So my sister's father-in-law was the president of Baylor Hospital at the time, and they lived in Colorado. They had a house in Colorado Springs. And I think they were there, and I had Johnny's body there, and but I couldn't leave it. And so I was really struggling. My sister had gone on to Denver, so she was there to meet Christopher when he got there. My husband was still en route from Dallas. And so at least I felt like Becky was there with Christopher. And, you know, she's my sister. She's been there for me. So I know at least he had somebody who loved him there. And I had to figure out what I was going to do. So John Becky's in-laws were able to arrange a plane, um, a small plane to take me and Johnny's body to Denver. So, okay. I have so many questions. So, so then what happens? So you get to be with Christopher, um, and you helped him in the hospital tremendously. I remember you telling me, well, that, that was the after, I mean, you know, the first two weeks in Denver, he was still in, you know, we were given five reasons why he probably wouldn't live. Yeah. You weren't, he didn't have a very good prognosis. And now if you meet Christopher, he's, he just seems like anybody else. Yeah. I know him for through you and right. I know that he has a brain injury, but you would not know that no. just talking from talking. To no. Him. So two weeks of, you know, ICU, we life lighted him back to Houston. Um, and he was two more weeks in ICU. We had the funeral for Johnny three weeks after because we couldn't, you know, get him back. He stayed in Denver with us and then we all flew back together. And yes, then the next couple of years were really consumed with Christopher's you know, we were told he would never live, walk or talk again, um, have a job, finish high school, you know, whatever. And he has all those. He's had all of them. He's done all of those. And so what did that look like for your family? You have two other kids who were mostly okay. Right. Uh, Allie had a broken collarbone, which we discovered later. And Joey had a bunch of cuts from the glass. Um, but they were nine and five at the time. And I think, you know, that first school year was a wash for them because we were all just in shock and survival mode. And Christopher's really, he did not, this was in August. He didn't say his first words until I think November. Um, and even when he was coming out of it, you know, Joey was by his side all the time. He would want to come home from school and go to the hospital and see, you know, like the, when Christopher got a wheelchair, when they were trying to do physical therapy and he was like by his side watching every step of the way because he obviously was, and he was at St. Catherine's. Allie and Joey were at St. Catherine's Montessori and the boys were at St. John's and St. Catherine's had taken a bunch of yellow ribbons and tied around the school. And they told Joey and Allie that the, when Christopher walked, he could come there and cut the ribbons off. So that day really happened you know, sometime toward the end of 98. And I, you know, that picture of Joey with his hand behind Christopher, you know, on his back is one of the most poignant pictures I think I have from all of that time period when Christopher was recovering. I've been to your house before and you have a picture of Johnny. Um, that it was next to a candle. I think mm-hmm. it was there. And I think it's always there. If yeah. I understand correctly. Yes. And this happened 21 years ago, which I guess to most people might sound like a long time. But I think once you have kids, you realize it's actually like three seconds. Yeah. Um, so what is that? Th- when it first happened, um, what was that like? I mean, how 
What was that like? Well, the words, you know, hideous. I mean, it was, it's visceral. The pain from that kind of loss is visceral. Um, I mean, most people think about it or even imagine it and wonder if they would even survive. Which I had said many times. After I had Allie, my fourth child, I went to my minister and said to him, I don't know if I have enough faith to just say, here are my children. I don't care what happens to them. Yeah. I think most people would would understand that. Of course. And as parents, we pray every night, you know, let them be safe and healthy and, you know, please let them me go before them or whatever you pray, you know, you have so much faith, but were you, I mean, you must've felt really angry with God maybe Um, at some point, you know, uh, anger isn't the word. Uh, I think your faith, my faith was shattered. It was, I'm not, I'm very honest about my journey. Um, because I couldn't understand, you know, how these things could happen. And and it wasn't why me, because I never took for granted that I knew too many children who had died in my childhood. So I never took for granted that I couldn't lose a child. Yeah. Um, but I think when my prayers weren't answered, that was when I said, okay, wait, I don't understand this. You know, I prayed every night that they would be okay. That they would. You be told okay. me once that you always had this feeling that you might lose one of your kids. I, in the back, I think my mother-in-law said to me one time, "You loved your kids so much, and you celebrated. They never knew that. I mean, I have no regrets because my kids knew they were loved. So they really knew every moment. But I think, um, you know, I think it wasn't. I guess I just treated life and their lives and like like I could. I mean, I didn't ever want them to not know. And in the back of my mind, I worried about it. Not that I thought it might happen, but I always, there was always that fear. So now the million dollar question, your faith was shattered. You have faith today, it seems like. So how? I think it's changed. I think, first of all, I have really good friends who are Jewish. I have really good friends who are Muslim and Buddhist. And I have friends who are atheist for that matter. And I thought to myself, okay, wait, this heaven and hell thing, what my Jewish friends aren't going to hell. My Muslim friends aren't going to hell. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. You're not going to hell, honey. <laughs> but my point is, and we can laugh about it, I had to reevaluate all of that. And yeah. I then also got all of the platitudes from people. He's in a better place. It's God's will. It was meant to be his number of days, you know, all of that. And um, I started to really analyze and think about that in a way I never had before. One being, I don't think God causes bad things to happen. And so that's actually a Jewish belief too, which I'm just learning about. Well, and that I find quite comforting. Actually, I think it's very comforting. I think people don't like to think that our lives are out of control when they really, I mean, I think that was, I think people struggle with that. It's fear-based. I think a lot of what we deal with when we think about grief and loss and, you know, bad things happening and we can't control those things. And I think, there was a freedom in that truth, but also, um, I don't think a lot of people get to that point unless they really have had something. Unless they really have to. That God comforts you when you're in pain, but doesn't cause that pain. Absolutely. And isn't the person who caused it. I think, I know for me, I certainly go to this place of why, why did this happen and trying to understand it or intellectualize it so maybe I can avoid having to experience right. it again. Yeah. But really, God is the comfort, at least in my understanding. Um, the good things, they come from God. No and doubt. then God is there when the bad yes. things happen. And puts people in your lives. And I mean, I can't tell you the number. I could not have made it without friends, family, community. Um, the support we have was really amazing. I, don't, I will never be able to really express to each little person, and there were so many, um, how much 
it meant, whether it be just a simple little, I'm thinking about you or a card or a gift or a prayer. I, we had so many people praying for our family who I don't even know. Um, but you know, I am grateful and I do believe that all of these people were put in to our lives, you know, for, for that reason. I actually feel so much lighter even talking to you right now because I'm thinking about all of the, quote, bad things that are happening. I mean, Australia is burning. Yeah, right. All of these things are happening that just feel so intense. And I think um, all of us, I know I have the tendency to go toward, well, there must be like a reason why it's happening or um, something that we've all done wrong systematically as a society. And we can speak to that, certainly. But um, to ch- switch my perspective from like, you know, that God is the love and God is the hope. Absolutely. Because I mean, people say all of these horrible things that God punishes you for, you know, horribly, horrible things, all kinds. And and you know where we are politically right now. So it's really messed up. But I think, um, that is really not the way the world works. And I think when we can stop blaming and, and focus more on love, I mean, we can solve problems when we focus on, love and things like that instead of focusing on the negative and blame trying to blame I think we have to step back and look and I think love is what carries me through I think that's what I cling to a lot just being you know having a love ethic and loving the best way I can um, my family and my friends and the things I've been given that I'm grateful to have and then also when you look at the big problems of the world we have to just take action and you know try to bring peace or resolve to things or, or awareness to issues that are important, like global warming and the fires and things that seem to be a conflict today. You, you told <laughs> Yeah. We could um, spend the whole rest of this oh time talking about politics, but I know that's not why we're here. No, I mean, it's hard not to. I was, I was just, I was watching Australia burning as so many of us have been. And, and somebody I'm following on Instagram, like posted a photo of the fire and said, Um, you know, one of the ways that we've made the biggest, she posted this caption with a photo of this gigantic fire. You know, one of the ways that we're trying to make a really big difference is like our whole family has gone vegan. Like we don't eat any meat anymore. And like just looking at this huge fire and then thinking about like one person, me like going vegan. And I'm like, I can't, like, I just, I don't, I don't feel motivated. Like, I'm sorry. I still feel so overwhelmed by despair. And like, I don't think that me eating, like me not eating meat is going to like save the world. But like, I think we're all kind of like in that place right Right. now of just like what what can we do yeah you know what do we do and um (laughs) like this sort of collective grief that we're all experiencing like the world as we know it is changing well and I think grief plays a big part in our lives that we don't always recognize there are um that's one of the things I talk about when I give my talks and it's about grief disenfranchised grief for example is the kind of grief that we feel from something that is not necessarily the loss of a person it can be grief from the loss of a job or the loss of our you know the world as we knew it in some ways like we have through this last three years or um grief from you know the loss of a friendship or you know whatever and I think grief plays a big part in so many things that we don't understand. And when we can recognize what it is, it helps to be able to sort of, you know. Well, you you told me um, that people would approach you and say, you know, he's in a better place now. And I had, I, I told you I was too embarrassed to tell you the story before we started that I would tell you on the recording. We had a very, very close family um, family member, my husband's first cousin, who's a very dear friend of mine. She was actually my birth doula. And she was my second guest on this podcast. 
She lost her 13-year-old son about four years ago to something called GSD. It's glycogen storage disease. It's a genetic disorder. And he you could basically say that he died like completely unexpectedly. Um, and it was shocking and horrific and hideous as you like to say. And I had never experienced anything like this before. I think I had just, I wasn't married yet. I was engaged and I went to her. She was, you know, inconsolable. It was the, I guess you could say before the funeral, everybody got together. And, um, I went to her and I said, you know, you have an angel now looking over you And the second the words came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, Laura, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, I just like, is that what you want somebody to say? Like, if your kid, God forbid, passed away, like, would you give a shit if they were an angel or not? (laughs) Like, you would want them to be here. Listen, I think in the scale of bad things to say, that's not so terrible. I would have punched myself in the face, honestly. But, you know, eh. but but where so I guess I have two questions coming from that story. One, you know, we're going to go into ways I'm looking at this list in front of me that you have ways to be helpful Mm -hmm. when somebody loses a child. So we'll go through some of those because I think so many people want to know what do I say? What can I do? Um, And also like where in the I mean, what did comfort you? Where do you feel Johnny is? Is he like the love in the end? Is he just part of... I definitely feel his presence. And I I mean, I have so many things, you know, we kind of laugh at people who have lost someone and they come up with all these signs. But I went, I think maybe in the first year or two, I went to this person who is supposed to be able to, I don't even know what you would call him. It's not a medium. It was somebody though. And somebody who had lost a child had gone. And this person did this tape, I I have it somewhere. But one of the things he said was that when you see a hawk, it's going to, you know, be symbolic of Johnny. Well, I'm not kidding. The way I've had four hawks in my backyard in West Jew, I had on what would have been his 17th birthday, we were at West Jew, and some of his friends were doing a little jazz concert, we were planting a tree and a hawk was circling around. I mean, they're everywhere in weird places and times. So like those little things are just, they'll be a feeling where I can tell he's his presence is there. And I think if you're open to that, then you can experience, you know, more of a connection and a relationship. I think part of what happens in, it used to happen anyway, and, and we're getting better about educating people is they thought you had to let go of that relationship with your dead person. Move whether, on or yeah. like, that's a very 90s mentality. Uh, like yeah. it's time to move on. Well, and I think therapists were encouraging people to, you know, just cut off the bond and that's not normal or healthy. And so I think we've gotten much better about saying, listen, it's normal to have a relationship with your, your child or your spouse or your parent when they die. And it's okay to have conversations and talk and talk about them. And I think educating people about the grieving process and these type of things is something that's important to me because I think we have to give people the tools to know it's okay and not feel like something's wrong with them or that they haven't moved on. I mean, you're moving on because guess what? Your person is not there. So it's not like you're in denial. Right. Um, It's just about the fact that, you know, when you love somebody and you lose somebody, you want to be able to remember them. And it's healthy and normal to keep that relationship, even though it's obviously different. I'm so glad that as a society, we're moving towards this idea that like grief is forever, that it just changes. And you have this relationship with somebody that it's going to evolve because what is that beautiful poem that they're in the next room? They're not fully, they're not here. They're just in the next room and having that relationship evolve with them in the next room. I think it is so much healthier. And I know I grew up with like, my mom is a baby boomer and I was born in the nineties and the, just the way that I was raised of, 
you know, it's time to move on. I remember like I was dumped for the first time by like my first boyfriend and it was like the biggest, the worst experience I'd ever had up to that date. I, I'd never been in so much pain, even though I'd only been with this person for a very short period of time. And about like two weeks later or something, my mom asked me why I was such in a bad, like in such a bad mood. And I told her it was because this person had broken up with me. And she's like, oh my God, that was two weeks ago. Get over it. And I was really raised with that. Like, get over it, move on, let it go. Like you shouldn't be, you shouldn't still feel this way. Like that's ever helped anyone stop feeling badly, right? Right. And, and then I had this incredible conversation with my husband actually last night. I was talking to him about this other relationship that I had been in in college, which was the transformational relationship of my life. It was so beautiful and painful and short, but it caused me to completely change my life because of how painful it was. Right. It turned me inside out and it, I was standing at a crossroads. Like I'm either going to keep living my life this one way or I'm going to go in a different direction. And I chose a different and much better direction. This was when I was 20 years old. Right. And now I'm 31 and the pain of that relationship and just the pain of being in it and also the pain of it ending, even though it was very short lived, I will never forget like it's still inside of me. And I said to him, you know, I'll never understand like fully why that's something that I'm never going to forget. The only sense I can make of it is that I needed something that was that painful in order to really transform my life as much as I needed to. But I still like I can't I can't deal or with or understand why something so short lived could have been so painful for me. And he said, well, Laura, that took 20 minutes for the World Trade Center to fall. Like it didn't take very long for all of this disaster to happen. Right. And the length, the length of something, you know, his best friend was killed when he was little. Like it took 20 seconds for Alexander to die when we were 13. The length of something has nothing to do with how much you grieve. And like, I feel like we're finally getting there. Yeah, right. We're finally getting to this place as a society where we can honor that and understand that like telling ourselves just get over it, move on. Like no one's getting over anything because you're telling them to. Right. And it's not, and it's normal to feel those things. I know when Joey, who was nine at the time, he had a relationship for three or four years with his high school sweetheart. She went to college with him. And when they broke up, it was, he was devastated. And I had worried about that one day and it triggered so much for him about grief and loss and I think and he was in pain for a long time he struggled for a long time with that and I think it is good that we're moving into a space where people can recognize that hurt and pain lasts a long time I mean acute grief I say lasts at you know a year or a couple years the very acute phase of pain and just you know can't breathe visceral kind of, is this really reality? hideous yes because it affects every single aspect of your life you know, so it was emotional, about, social, you feel like it was like one so what what did that look like what was that timeline for you after johnny passed away that like you what was that first moment where you thought oh i can see the sunshine a little bit a mm, couple years it was not you know the second year was harder i think the first year you're just doing the first you know you're going this is the first time first everything without them. And so I, I have a timeline on my website that I'm still working on, but it's about that. It shows that, you know, the first of everything are really hard. And I don't think you are, you're still in shock and you're not really even grieving, grieving. Um, and it's counterintuitive, but you know, six to nine months when people think you're moving on is when sort of you hit rock bottom. So people don't understand, you know, six months, they think, wow, that's a long time really in the, scheme of, you know, a grief 
journey like that, the loss of a child, six months is nothing. You're still in shock. You know, you still have a pretty decent amount of support by that point, but then it starts to, you know, stagger and people move on and then you're in the trenches. And then the second year is hard because I think the reality sets in and you're not in shock and you're not surrounded by the people. So the second year was worse. And I think third, fourth, fifth, probably we're still with a cloud, you know, a big fog and, you know, sun would shine and come out. But then, you know, you would take five steps backwards or something. I mean, you know, the thing about when you lose a child, no matter whether it's a stillborn child or a child who's three months old or 13 or 25 or 50, is that they never stop growing up in your mind, you know, so Johnny died at 13. But every year, there was something, you know, with the year he would have turned 15, he died right before eighth grade. So eighth grade graduation, then there's high school, then there's getting your license. So I think you go through all of those things, and they soften, it softens for sure over time. But it doesn't ever leave you. It doesn't ever leave you. So what are you talked about people um, kind of falling by the wayside, like after a few weeks or a few months, they think, okay, she has everything she needs, or I don't want to bother her. But that's not true at all. They actually need you more later right. on. And, um, and, and forever. I and mean, forever. you know, really, I am still grateful for I have friends who still 21 years later, ask you how you're doing, or send a little thing, you know, in memory of Johnny, I have one friend who has on his birthday every year, sent either a gift or a card or some little tree planted in his memory or something. And people who just acknowledge that it's still hard. I mean, I, you know, right now his friends are married and having kids. And I think about what that would look like. And for that matter, we do that some with Christopher because we have a son with a brain injury. So his life, you know, path was definitely changed socially, emotionally, all of that. And, you know, right now he's the one who wants to be married. He's 33 and he would have been, he was my little love bug before the accident. And so there's grief to be had. There's a lot of grief there. Um, and I think that's been part of the hardest thing for my children is that, you know, as a mother and as a husband and a wife, you know, or mother and father, people understand your grief. But my kids as siblings, they have had to deal with so many things that um, went unrecognized. I mean, not by us, my husband and I, or my parents or my sister or the people who really were in there for the long haul and mm-hmm. still are. Um, but I think that is another thing that is important. And I talk a lot about sibling grief in my work. Well, speaking of people who were there for the long haul, one of the things that I find so amazing about you is that you're still married, which right. is like not that common when you experience that kind of a loss or it's very, it's somewhat miraculous, I guess you could say, because a lot of people like marriage doesn't survive the loss of a child. Well, what happens is people throw those statistics at you, you know, 90%, 50%. And honestly, the statistics, the research supports that it's not that it's more like under 20%. Under 20% get divorced. Um, I think something like that. Now, that research is, a, they haven't done a whole lot, but that I think the latest research says something like that. I think it can tear a marriage apart, no doubt, and it does. Um, but I think a lot of times that's from maybe couples who have an unstable foundation anyway. And we were lucky 
to have a pretty strong foundation. And I think also a tragedy like this can bring you together. And, and you're the only two people in the world who've experienced this exact exactly. same thing. I mean, nobody and, and with us, it wasn't just the loss of a child, we had a son with a brain injury. So there were multiple and then we had, you know, other children who over their lifetime have struggled because of this at different times in their lives and different ages. And I think that for sure has brought us together because we do know, um, you know, what that looks like. And we've lived it together and it, it has made our marriage stronger in, in a lot of ways. So you have a list that you've shown me, um, the ways to be helpful, um, mm-hmm. when someone has experienced the loss of a child. So here it is. I'm going to show it to you. Mm-hmm. If you just want to share some of them with us, I know I, for one, have definitely been curious on how to approach someone who's gone through any type of loss. Um, Okay, I, the first thing I'm going to say, and I'm not even going to read it from this list, is no at least, because there is never anything that comes after that. At oh, least. at least you didn't lose all your kids. Uh, at least you can have other children. At least, you know, I somebody said, at least you didn't die. I'm like, damn it, I would have, excuse yeah. me, given anything to, for that to be me and, right. you know, not my child. I, that's a very interesting thing that somebody would say. It was weird. Lost a child. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at like least you you're alive. And I'm like, are you kidding? Me? Yeah. What? Hello. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, Johnny died right before eighth grade. Somebody said, at least you don't have to worry about this homework. Oh my God. Yeah. And then when they were, he was, would have been a senior. They said, at least you don't have to worry about these college applications. Um, so you're just like, do you know how desperately I would want oh, to be doing and how much I would love to be watching him do his homework? I mean, hello. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So yeah, it's shocking. And yeah. and look, believe me, I'm not alone. I mean, it is a universal thing. And I think that's why I think education is so important. Um, and asking, how are you? I think is something that's hideous, you know, how, how are you? Yeah. Or just uh-huh. say, you know, Hey, I'm, you, how are you? You know, not, how are you? <laughs> not how are you? I'm not good. Thank you for not asking. <laughs> um, I think, you know, there's so many different things. Uh, I talk about um, not judging. I th- I've been in many situations where the something happens like a child dying while they're drunk driving or of an overdose. And I think, or even just details, I think it's important not to judge and not to gossip about those things because when somebody's child dies, it's sacred. And I think we should treat it that well, way. Well, you experienced that around the seatbelts. Oh, absolutely. People were saying my kids weren't in the seatbelts. They were, you know, all kinds of stuff. People said I fell asleep at the wheel. General Motors tried to say I fell asleep at the wheel. I think that's because people just want to figure out how this is not going to happen to them. And I think that's normal. I think yeah. we want to know details so that we can, as a parent, say, okay, look, we're going to learn from this so that we don't. But then there are people, unfortunately, who are gossipy. And unfortunately, you know, there are some in everybody's lives. And I had, believe me, more than I wished. And some were related, um, not my personal family, but still. And that's, it's hard. Um, It's hard when you see people's true colors. It's hard when you are disappointed. I think um, I had to change my expectations, expecting that everyone would react like I would have or treated me like I would have treated. That's the most painful part sometimes. Yeah. I think. I th- yeah. So you had secondary losses with that, you know, people or relationships that, you know, you learned about that, that you had to move away from to just survive. And I think it is a very freeing feeling to have, to be able to make those kind of decisions. I was only 35 when it happened. But I did. I mean, I had to get rid of people who were toxic and I had to, you know, really focus on my family and, and the yeah. people who were healthy in their lives and in our lives and refrain from giving advice. That's one thing. Um, I don't, I think people are so uncomfortable when they would see me, they would just 
either spew like the worst thing that had ever happened to them for some reason. <laughs> like one friend told me about her. She was a, you know, drug dealer. I, you know, it's like they come up to you because I think it's their way of trying to connect. Somebody told me their dog died and they understood, you know, so I think, or, oh my God. Yeah, or they start to give you advice on, you know, you should be doing this or, you know, do that or yoga. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I did yoga. yoga. Oh help. God. Yoga was awful. When I got into that corpse pose, I would just lie on the floor and cry. I've heard that that is actually a very, like if you have had any type of loss or trauma, like do not do Shavasana, the corpse pose, yeah. because it Don't. actually is oh, like horrible. It, for it you. is yeah. horrible. And not only that, I think things like yoga and meditation, when you are in acute grief are really not helpful. I mean, unless you're so skilled at, for example, meditation, because it's, it's hard to describe where to you're be with yourself. Yeah, in that way, because you're, you know, I mean, part of you has to just try to survive. And when you're in stillness and acute grief, it's, I don't even know how to describe the feeling, but it's hard to really be able to you know, meditate on something positive or peaceful or whatever. People love to suggest yoga, like whatever yeah. is wrong, like just do some yoga. Yeah, no, yeah. do not just, you know, I think you just have to pay attention and honor your grief and do what I mean, for some people, it may be the right thing, but you have to honor what feels good for you and not let anybody tell you how or what you should be doing. And, you know, trust your gut. So don't say how are you? But what what would you have wanted somebody to have said to you? Just, you know, hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm not sure how you're getting through this, but I'm here, you know, I had, there's a quote that I like, and it's one of my favorite, um, I'm going to just read it here while we're here. And it's from Miriam Greenspan. It says, without a listener, the healing process is aborted. Human beings like plants that bend toward the sunlight, bend toward others. There are times when being truly listened to is more critical than being fed by a kind of grace. Good listening transforms suffering. And I think I had a few people who listened, just came and listened. One was our neighbor who I really didn't know well before. And she came up to the hospital when we got back to Houston. It was after Christopher was out of ICU. And he was then at Texas Children's and then Tear. And she came every week the same day and just listened. And it was such a gift. Um, She didn't judge. She didn't question. She didn't give advice. She just listened. And it was one of the most important relationships, you know, when I talk about people who were sent in my life, and here was Carmody, um, listening. And I think being listened to being heard, um, and being allowed to just be and feel and grieve the way you need to is what what is helpful and what people can do. I mean, just show up and be there. And so so I'm looking (laughs) at all of your papers and all of you've made slideshows, you've got presentations, and now you're writing a book. Yes. Okay, we we need to read it. So when is it going to be done, Mary? Let's hope sooner than later. It's like every time I get, you know, I mean, when you read the book, you'll realize why it's not written because every couple years, something else happens. I have gotten to read a few chapters and it is incredibly brilliant. And you you. need to just please publish it. And I'm working on that. I I promise you it's my 2020 goal. I would love for it to be published this year. I'm not sure, but it's, it's coming. And I, you know, have now... The grief chapters, which I promise I'll let you read as soon as I have them done. But you've read the narrative and there you have it. It Well, even just talking to you. I mean, I've never really gotten to talk to you about your story in this way because I met you. You were like a client of mine (laughs) and I was doing your website and 
I've never gotten to just talk to you in this way. And like you're, you just have this extremely healing presence and so much to offer people through what you've experienced. And so I'm going to be one of the people in your life who's pressuring you. Keep it up. Christopher, my son does too. He has been my cheerleader for, I mean, I've been working on this for 10 years. And it's incredible. I mean, you can't put it down. Like I only read, you sent me like in a Google doc or something. I read like seven pages and I was like, what? Like, I felt like I had read something that I wanted to just share with somebody else. Can you read this so we can talk about it? I couldn't give them the book. So (laughs) I need, <laughs> I, I promise I promise I need a little I think I need an assistant is really what I need because I'm just uh I think but it will happen I promise I'm so glad. I'm getting there but you could see this disarray is really what it looks like well, and I need I to love what you've done <laughs> what you've done with your grief that you've taken this sort of like responsibility almost for sharing what you experienced so that other people can heal from your experiences you didn't have to do that I just think that that's such a beautiful thing well, thank you. I, it's important to me that to educate communities and help people who are grieving. And it's not just the people, it's the people in their lives. So really what I do now is more community-based work where I just not just educate, you know, the immediate family, and but I want to educate friends and the school system. Sometimes you have to go to a school and say, listen, I mean, when children are experiencing grief, whether it's a parent or a sibling or whatever, they can't focus in school. And a lot of times our school systems put a lot of pressure on kids to, you know, just pretend like nothing happened. Yeah. And their brains don't even work the way they used to because of the trauma and the loss. So, and I even go to places of business where I've been to law firms where, you know, somebody will lose a child and nobody knows what to do and they want to be able to help. So I think the more information that we can, I can impart and the more I can educate people about it, the better, everyone, you know, who's going through that will be if they have the kind of support and people around them who understand what it looks like. Well, I think that what you're doing is amazing. And I'm so grateful that you you. came on to share your story. Thank you for having me. And um, everyone that was Mary Beth Archidiacono and her website is marybetharchidiacono.com. You can find the spelling for that on (laughs) my, uh, on the description (laughs) to this podcast. um, If you were curious, but she, um, talks more about grief on her website and, and her book will be coming out soon. She promises. Yes. Right. Um, and thank you again for joining me. And you've thank been listening you. to look ma no hands. I'm Laura Max Rose. And if you haven't subscribed, please do so share it with your friends and we'll talk to you again next time. Mom, mom, mom.